0: How do you outperform the market? Well, it's the age-old question for investors, isn't it? We can all buy an ETF or an index fund and just take what the market gives us, but what every investor really wants is to do better than that. Otherwise, what's the point? It's called beta and alpha. Beta is what the market provides. Alpha is the extra bit. And there's no mystery to it. Alpha comes from businesses that have something special. Today's Spotlight interview is with someone who spent his life searching for that something special, as a consultant and as an investment manager. He's come to the conclusion that it's all about intangible assets, specifically the ability to control the marginal prices. David Martin is the founder and chairman of Purple Bridge Asset Management, MCAN Consulting, and he recently became the director of the Centre for Applied Innovation at the Melbourne Polytechnic. I ran into him at a lunch recently and I thought you should hear his story – and, more importantly, his ideas. In
1: 1998, the United States government was very fascinated by something we had done in Japan in the the midst of the banking crisis in Japan. We were looking at ways in which banks could use innovation and intangible assets as a form of collateral to stabilize commercial and industrial loans. And the reason for that is very simple. As real estate markets were plummeting, companies that were otherwise healthy were technically entering a default position vis-a-vis their collateral position on their loans. And so there needed to be a way to find other assets, assets that we now would refer to as knowledge economy assets, to essentially put on the collateral books for banks so that the companies themselves wouldn't be seen as being in a technical default and therefore potentially at very significant credit risk. When we got to the United States after doing that in Japan, the U.S. Federal Reserve, the Bank of America, who at the time had a very large exposure to what was called the small business loan environment, so that was the federal government's credit guarantees for small business, Said, hey, that that idea that you did with really big banks and big creditors in Japan would be a really great idea to bring to small banks and small creditors in the U.S. And this is in the early 2000s. Oh, this is 1998. So this was still the Asian financial crisis. And what we did was we developed a mechanism where we could provide a what was called collateral guarantee or collateral enhancement that allowed companies to use their intangible assets and their innovation as a regulatory acceptable form of collateral. And that revolutionized banking because it now opened up the banking sector uh, to companies that had historically not been able to access it. And so really the roots of MCAM were understanding intangible assets and innovation and understanding how innovation behaves as a piece of collateral. And what grew and so out MCAM of that- so MCAM
0: was a, sort of an advisor or a consultant.
1: No, we were actually the risk-taking entity. We were the insurance between the bank that was issuing credit and the borrower whose collateral might at some point become the subject of an orderly liquidation. So we were actually pr- providing an insurance product um, that allowed people to have a AAA-rated view of the asset
0: that Historically, nobody knew how to measure. So when did you decide to get into the investment field yourself?
1: Well, quite quite by accident, as a matter of fact. <laughs> as with all good programs, you, you don't do them by design, you do them by opportunity. It turns out that we were looking at intangible assets around businesses, and it became very clear very quickly that the view we had was contrarian. In a market, as you can imagine, in the late 90s in the United States, there was a huge outpouring of support for technology, and everybody wanted to become a technology investor. And well, so it was, there was a all effect. up, all up, all up all the time. And in a credit underwriting environment, you have to say sometimes the baby's ugly. You have to actually say, yeah, maybe this one's not a good one. And it turns out by taking a contrarian view in the credit market, we were also able to take a contrarian view in the equity market. And so for a very interesting development, Bank of New York, who was trying to get into the research business, said, hey, guys, could you please put your energy towards looking at equity-oriented risk rather than credit-oriented risk? Can we actually look at whether or not companies are misstating how great their new technology is or how competitive or how disruptive that is? And so we started a product called New Patent Thursday which happens to be the day that new patents get issued, and we also started a series of other research products that we were selling to equity investors, to essentially say that a company was representing their innovation in an improper way, and it fueled what became quite an interesting development of an activist short market, so and that you were, was in you the early looking, 2000s. And you were looking for dogs. Well, we were looking for material misstatements where a company was making a public representation that the facts didn't support. So it was it was really trying to put some truth in advertising. In a world, as you know, Ellen. there's a plethora of sell-side analysts, right? There's a, a universe of people who will pump anything if you pay them the right amount of money. There aren't many people on the buy side. Very few people are giving people the truth in advertising analysis, and by being that provider, the ability to say, hey, the opportunity you thought you had wasn't really as good as you thought it was. We were offering an insight that was really unique in the market globally, because well, at that point in time... Especially in the late 90s. Yeah, at that point in time, if you were saying that tech was a buyer beware market, you were viewed as a Luddite. And you know, and our view was, you know, people make misrepresentations all the time. And it's a pretty good idea to get a bit of truth in advertising, and that's really what we were about.
0: So, uh, Purple Bridge actually does more than short.
1: Well, actually, uh, misrepresentation. So, so right? here's the funny thing: we started off largely supplying research on the hedge fund and managed fund marketplace. So we were a soft dollar research provider through Bank of New York's Westminster Research, and then ultimately Convergex. And then we started doing bespoke research for a bunch of hedge fund managers. And through a project we did with GE Capital, we looked at whether we could take a long position instead of just always looking at the short coverage. And it turns out that we started looking at the degree to which companies were positioned to take advantage of forward market opportunities and started working with GE Capital and GE Treasury on this idea of a secular, long market view. Could you bet on a winner in the future? based on the innovation a company had and where the market was going. And Purple Bridge is a long only product. We don't short anything, we don't leverage anything. We are a long only product and what we do is we measure the readiness of a company to take an advantage of a market opportunity the market hasn't priced into a stock. So we call the underlying algorithm innovation alpha. And what we're looking for are companies that have an unpriced and invisible, to gap accounting treatment, invisible market advantage, which is, in fact, public and disclosed, but not seen by the market.
0: So this might be an opportunity now to talk about Purple Bridge's performance.
1: We're very fortunate. When we set up Purple Bridge as a classic hedge fund structure, so it's a classic GPLP structure like many other hedge funds, What do those letters stand for? General partner, limited partner. So shareholders are buying an interest in the limited partner managed by the general partner. When we set it up, we were really targeting a family office, large managed account kind of marketplace, the the quasi-institutional investor, if you will. And what we said we would do is we would benchmark our performance absolutely against the beta of the Dow or against the beta of the S&P. So rather than picking an arbitrary benchmark and then fluffing your numbers to make it look like you're somehow better than them, which is all too often the case with managed accounts, we built the first Purple Bridge fund, beta neutral the Dow. And the reason we did it is because people think that the 30 stocks in the Dow are as close to an efficient market as you can get. The argument being all known information is equivalently known, everybody is, is going to basically have the same information advantage, and therefore the price shouldn't have a lot of volatility.
0: Do you think that's right?
1: Well, absolutely. I proved it wasn't right. And we did something else, which was kind of fun. We rebalanced our first fund on the 18th of every quarter to match the middle day of the Federal Reserve meeting cycle. Now, why did we pick that day? We picked that day because the Federal Reserve meeting cycle, when they try to figure out which way interest rates are going and they think about what economic policy is going to look like, is a day that happens to not have anything else that correlates with trading that day. It is a day where essentially, in the signal-to-noise ratio, you're all noise. And we decided to pick trading and executing on the middle day of the Federal Reserve operating cycle, simply because... If we could show alpha on that day, we were very convinced that what we were measuring was the only thing we were measuring, because nothing else is indicative that day. So if you can show alpha by executing on the day that nothing else is actually showing anything, that's a pretty interesting thing. And it turns out that in our back testing before we launched the fund, we were showing about 108% outperformance of the Dow. That's a big number. Sure. It's a huge number. In fact, in an efficient market, if you can pick up, I don't know, 15 or 20%, people would say, well, that's a pretty big deal. Picking up 100% tells you something. And it tells you something quite profound. It says By 100%
0: you mean that out-performance. You, were, you, were, you were doubling the performance. Ac- the absolutely.
1: Right. And it turns out that net of fees, we've maintained an outperformance that lives between that 40 and 80% net of fees performance. So, The amount of money that is on the table to intelligently pursue alpha far exceeds what managers were even remotely thinking would be possible. You know, in the day of quantitative trading with the companies like Rentech and QIM and other really sophisticated high-frequency traders, those were the types of performances on the best of days they were getting, but they weren't persistently getting that.
0: So but how was Purple
1: Bridge getting that kind of outperformance? Yeah, that's a great question.
0: Since, on. 1805, What's the
1: since 1805, we have this horrible thing in the markets called gap accounting, the generally accepted accounting principles. And it's essentially the rules that tell companies what they have to tell the market. And the funny thing is, everybody has the same information. So you get your performance, your financial statements, your contingent liabilities, your contingent revenues, all of those kinds of things. But missing from gap accounting are intangible assets. Now, we've argued for over two decades now that that's a giant market mistake, that we should, as a global accounting discipline, actually tell people the competitive market advantages that are state-granted rights. But the accounting industry, I know this is going to come as a shock, but the accounting industry doesn't move that fast. They're using 1805 accounting rules that were developed by Napoleon, seriously, like Napoleon's swamp decree of 1805. They're using those rules in terms of how you report balance sheets. Missing from that is the largest asset that drives the economy, which is proprietary rights, the ability to control the marginal price of goods and services, and that is absolutely opaque. To every accounting just, regime let's just on Let's go over planet. that again.
0: You're not just referring to intangible assets. You're talking about the ability to control prices. Yeah.
1: So for a company, I mean, we know this. You go to a supermarket, you go to Kohl's or Woolies right now, and you walk into the beverage aisle, and there's going to be a box that is red and white in the beverage aisle. And we all know what that is. We know what's in that, and we know that there's a price on that. And then somewhere down the aisle, probably in a lower shelf somewhere else, is a box that's white and brown, or white and green, or white and some other color. And if we took a mass spectrometer and said, is the brown liquid in the red and white case and the brown liquid in the white and green case fundamentally different, we'd get dangerously close to saying, nah, there's no difference, but you're paying twice for the red and white case, what you're paying for the white and green case, and you're paying that difference. That's an intangible market control. There's something about the red and white logo that makes a buyer say, it's a better product. Now, everybody loves to say, well, there's a secret formula, and that's what's behind it. No, it isn't. No, it's in this it's day marketing. and age, it has nothing to do with secret formulas. There's no kind of divination. There's no priest that gives it a blessing. It's, you're getting the same brown juice. But the brown juice in one and the brown juice in another, whether they are absolutely equivalent or not, command a different price. And unfortunately, in gap accounting, there's no way to treat that. There's no accounting way to represent that. So it gets written off as goodwill, it gets impaired as goodwill, but it lives in this ephemeral space, which unfortunately cannot inform investment markets because investment markets don't know how much marginal value is in that product, how much marginal price control is the brown stuff, and how much marginal price control is the red and white package. And if you can't pull that apart, then you're investing blindly. And the great news is the efficient market theory will tell you, you don't have to know because it'll all sort out in the end, which is probably true if you're a beta investor. If all you care about is just kind of getting where the market's going, you're probably okay. But if you want to get alpha in an investment, you have to be able to measure that differential. And you have to measure it correctly. And you have to compare that differential to, for example, other markets that may be susceptible to sugar pricing, or other markets that might be susceptible to some sort of aluminum can pricing, or markets that are susceptible to other things. Because to understand how to pull that number apart, what makes the red and white package
0: different, you have to take the component pieces apart. Tell me how this idea applies to investing in innovation.
1: Yeah, well, so innovation at its heart is the ability to not only control a marginal price, where you have an invention or you have something that gives you a proprietary advantage that blocks somebody else from a market. So part of it is, do you have something that keeps people out of a market? And then another piece of it is, do you have something that's responsive to a market demand? So innovation, if it's done right and if it's done appropriately, has already assessed something about the market and said there is a cash flow somewhere that I can get my hands on, and if I do my invention or my innovation correctly, I'm going to not only be able to access that market, but I'm going to keep others from that market. So it's a mix of both opportunity and then having the no trespassing sign that says, once I get the opportunity, I can keep other people from it. If I have those two things together, I have the highest marginal price control available. And once again, having it is great, but you've got no place to report it. Since there's no place to report it, whoever gets to measure it is going to have an alpha advantage in markets that no one else has. So how do you measure it? Yeah, so what we do is we do a thing called, and I'm going to use a couple of big terms, but I'm going to explain what they mean. We're looking at a process called particle swarm optimization. Now, if you've ever been driving down the road in the evening or in the morning, and you see a flock of birds, and the flock of birds is seeming to move almost in unison, you kind of look at them and you go, I don't know how they do it, but it's like this cloud, and sometimes it goes one direction, then it all goes in another direction, and they have all these interesting patterns. Well, like flocks of birds, markets move in a similar way. And we use an algorithm that we reduced out of mapping how fish swarm and how birds move in that, and we actually use that algorithm to understand how market participants move. I'll give you a very simple example. If you think of Exxon... Everybody thinks Exxon is an energy company and a proxy for some way to access the oil market. But oil is a commodity that has all kinds of things that influence it. And so when you think of Exxon, a piece of the value of Exxon is oil. But the market opportunity of Exxon is not just oil, but it's how Exxon access that oil. How do they refine it? How do they distribute it? How do they deliver it? So when I think about Exxon, I need to think of it in that swarming fish or that flocking bird analogy when something moves in exxon what else moves with it so sometimes oil is the driver that's moving that and that's a time when i want to look at exxon and kimberly clark in the same view now you sit there going why kimberly clark well kimberly clark is a huge consumer one of the larger consumers of plastics So it turns out that Kimberly-Clark in one instance and Exxon in one instance are going to move together. But in another time, when the price of oil is actually kind of all baked into the market, then the thing that makes Exxon compete or not compete is how they access the oil. So then I might look at them as a proxy with a Baker Hughes or a Halliburton or a Schlumberger, right? Same company. Different conditions tell me that the innovation in one instance is how well do you control access to oil, another time it's how well you do control the price of resin, and at any point in time, I need to be able to compare what is relevant and what components of the market are responding to that relevance. And so what we're doing is looking at how these stocks move and then picking the ones that have the proprietary or the innovation or the invention advantage that says if we're moving towards horizontal drilling, then I'm going to compare Exxon to Halliburton, to Schlumberger, to Baker Hughes. If I'm looking at downstream refining of oil, I'm going to look at Exxon, and I'm going to look at the people who are consuming resin, and I'm going to say they're the proxies that I'm going to look at. And if... If if a Kimberly-Clark has a proprietary way they like to make their plastics, then they're probably going to win an advantage that Exxon doesn't have, because Exxon's going to have to sell them an unrefined, unfinished good or sell them a wholesale price to their proprietary price. And it's measuring those things, which are actually quite simple once you describe them. There's just so much data to look at because we're doing this across 23,000 companies. When you think about mapping 23,000 companies and every component of every supply chain, that's a pretty daunting task.
0: So you're mapping and and trying to measure the intangible sort of assets of 23,000 companies. Is that really what you're doing?
1: That's the tiny tip of the iceberg, yes. That's the tip of the iceberg. We're measuring the publicly traded expressed equities because we're trading in the public markets. To do that, we actually have to look at probably close to 80 million private companies that are also in that schooling fish and flocking bird analogy. So at any point in time, we're looking at several hundred million comparisons
0: before we execute a trade. Right. So I was hoping you could tell us something that our individual investors could could emulate. They can. can. No, 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 they can. How can an ordinary investor to undertake the sort of thing you're talking yeah, about?
1: Yeah, the, the answer is be aware of supply chains. Right now, unfortunately, we've been trapped in a world that is largely classification-driven. So we're told to think of a stock as an energy stock or a consumer cyclic or, you know, we're, we're told to think a particular way, so we think in classification. And the problem with thinking in classification is that you stop looking. So the average investor is going to look at consumer cyclics, or they're going to look at retail, or they're going to look at financial services, and they're going to pick within that sector. So if I know I want to have 11% financial services, I'm going to start by saying, here are the financial services sectors, and I'm going to look at those. But what I'm not going to do is I'm not going to think about how many companies right now in financial services are currently trying to deal with cybersecurity. All of them. Yeah. Yeah. Of course. <laughs> so guess what? If I'm thinking financial services, I may want to read what ANZ and what Westpac and what, you know, Commonwealth Bank and what others are doing, not in the general sense of financial services, but I'm interested in their alpha. I want to look at who's announcing that they're in partnership with an IBM or with a DXC or with a some company that I know is actually an expert in cyber, where I know that the alpha of financial services is actually going to be expressed in a lateral sector. And this is a very simple thing for an investor to do. It's very simple to get out of the trap of classification. So what do you do in that situation? So So what you're doing is you're saying, listen, I may know that there are four banks that I'm considering. I'm going to look at what those four banks are spending their money on. It's a very simple thing to do. Look at their financial statement. Look at their shareholder reports. Look at the publicly available information and say, is there a common sector that they're all putting money into? At one point, it might be data. Another point, it may be security. Another point, it may be ATMs. So I might need a Diebold exposure, or I might need to pick up something that says there is somebody else that's going to win by virtue of the fact that that particular set of companies
0: is investing heavily in something. So you're saying that that cybersecurity firm for example is also a fintech. Absolutely. Or in is the it mo- a financial Absolutely. Business. Absolutely. That's that's what and you're see
1: that's where the classification thing kills us. When we think in these vertical silos, we don't see that alpha happens not within those. Alpha happens across those. Beta is inside the silo. That's where the sector gets an up or the sector gets a down. So somebody comes out and says, housing's overheating, and there's a secular push down on financial services. Now, the fact of the matter is, you can ride that wave up, you can ride it down, you can ride it sideways, it doesn't matter. But I need to find the place where financial services is expressed in a lateral industry. And the individual investor, the, the biggest advantage an individual investor has is that lateral thinking how do i understand the entire supply chain so i'm not capturing the beta which is the commodity value of that sector and i start picking up the alpha that that sector is creating it's easily done requires a different kind of thinking
0: I've been talking to David Martin, the founder and chairman of Purple Bridge Asset Management and the director of the Centre for Applied Innovation at Melbourne Polytechnic.